Hi everyone, welcome to The Lab Report, a podcast that will show you the inner workings of the clinical lab through discussions, interviews, and stories. Most importantly, you will see what goes on behind the scenes in the clinical lab and how it can impact you. Welcome to this episode of The Lab Report. This is part two of our Fellows Chat episode where Drs. Felix Lung, Matthew Nichols, and I chat about the journey to becoming a clinical biochemist. Go listen to part one if you haven't already, where we discuss our different journeys to becoming clinical biochemists, as well as the importance of and strategies for work-life balance. Now in part two, we will discuss imposter syndrome and starting a job as a clinical biochemist after successfully completing the fellowship. As we're already talking about the things that we do within the fellowship, I think we should talk about imposter syndrome, right? I think that is something that I have been acutely aware of, and especially, it's funny, as you move forward in your professional life, I feel like it's something that becomes more and more obvious or exaggerated in your head, at least for me. Uh, so I don't know, maybe either of you can speak to it right now. Um. I've moved around a lot during my uh, educational training. So like a bachelor's, master's, PhD, uh, postdoc prior to the fellowship. And at each of those locations, I, I always find it challenging. Like on your very first day, you don't know anyone. You're not sure what's expected of you. And um, it can be very challenging, especially when you're a learner and you're just starting at the bottom rung, as you previously said. So there are a lot of things that you don't know. And when you're thrown into this environment where, you know, you're the, the new kid on the block and, you know, there's so much to learn, um, you, you can sometimes very easily feel out of place. And that can be very discouraging at the start. Uh, and so I found one of the tricks for myself is I always have to tell myself, you know, all of my peers or superiors, they all had their first day ones. And so I try to lean back on, Oh, well, Matt, you moved all the way out to Halifax from Ontario and you got through that first day once. And then you got through that first week once and then that first month once. And then you eventually climbed to be the top or climbed to higher rungs on the ladder. Uh, and during those processes, you, you continually gain confidence. And so it's, it's, it's something you're kind of always working uh, to achieve. Um, but if I just tell myself, if someone else can do it, if I sit down and I work hard and I study, I can get there too. And so I have to remind myself of that on the bad days. Um, and just just kind of the, the no quit attitude and eventually uh, you'll get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think this is something that definitely it's not um, specific to our profession, but it's something that so many people deal with. Um, and I found this one kind of definition of it that I just wanted to say so everyone knows kind of what we're talking about. So um, several high achievers have chronic feelings of self-doubt and fear of being discovered as an intellectual fraud. Common feelings include phoniness, self-doubt, and the inability to take credit for accomplishments. And this is really what imposter syndrome um, is. So I think it's really, even if like 10 things go right for you, then you have one thing go wrong. You're going to focus on that one place you went wrong and really feel um, bad about yourself, even though you've had several accomplishments and you really are trying as hard as you can. Um, 
And I think something that helps me is just knowing like you really cannot know everything and nobody knows everything. <laughs> so I think the most important thing is instead of when you don't know something, kind of being ashamed of it or trying not to let people know you don't know it is just really being open with what you don't know and ask questions so you can now understand that that concept or whatever it is that you didn't understand before. Um, and I think the other thing that's really helped me is just knowing that mistakes are going to happen. You're never always going to get the right answer. You're never going to do everything as you wish you had done. And so whenever mistakes happen, you just really need to learn from them and, and move on and never um, kind of focus too much on what you didn't know in the past or mistakes you made in the past, but just keep going. And I think that's why imposter syndrome isn't always bad. Sometimes it can be good because if you had no doubt in yourself, it would you would have less to strive forward for so those little doubts kind of keep you going and every time you don't know something it should just push you forward and continue to to grow so i think parts of imposter syndrome can can really be helpful for people i think i really agree with things that you have both brought up but you know vicky when you especially talk about your um, consciousness in terms of your own knowledge my way or strategy of working through imposter syndrome or at least, you know, alleviating my own concerns about it. Um, it goes back to, and I don't remember which faculty showed me this, but it was early in the fellowship and it was, um, it, it was very like, uh, it was a big revelation almost, even though the concept was very simple. It, it was something like the hierarchy of knowledge. And it basically talks about, you know, how your consciousness of knowledge progresses. You start off at the bottom ladder, which is that you don't know what you don't know. So essentially, you are completely blinded from even the things that you don't know. Um, maybe true ignorance is another way or a more pejorative way to call it. And then the next level is that you begin to be aware of what you don't know. So there's an awareness of what you don't know. The next thing is that you, I think it's that you begin to be aware of what you do know. And then the last one is that your knowledge is so all encompassing that it has become part of your subconscious so that you don't even need to consciously think about what you know or don't know anymore because you basically know everything, right? Um, and I think the really key thing is that most of us, uh, if not all of us, always start at the bottom rung. And it is that ability to make it up to that next level that is like the key thing um, for whenever you start in a new position or in a new program, like wherever you have a situation where you feel like imposter syndrome, it's really having the ability to recognize what you don't know. Because when you recognize it, then naturally you should be seeking those answers, right? And I think that's really how you just quell those doubts because you are now at least comfortable in recognizing, well, I didn't know the answer to that, but I knew I didn't know. And now I'm going to seek a resource, whether that be a colleague or your superior or literature, I'm going to find out what the right answer is because I'm not going to make it up in my own head. Um, and I think that's probably the most important switch. Again, I would say imposter syndrome is always something that you know i would say especially people in our profession will constantly battle with um, but uh, i think that is probably like one of the most important things to think about is that just reflecting on what you know and what you don't know and being acutely aware of when there is something that requires you to you know seek the knowledge from elsewhere because you just don't have it 
Um, and it, it ties in all these concepts of no one's perfect, mistakes happen, nobody can know everything. You know, these are all very much interrelated concepts when we talk about imposter syndrome. Um, I've always found that to be like a very important philosophy to always think about and try to follow. Um, I mean, the other, uh, the other aspect to think about it is that it prevents you from committing patient harm, right? The worst thing is if you start to give out answers on something that directly impacts patient care, which is everything we do really, um, based on something that you actually have no idea about and for whatever reason you think you actually know or have some knowledge base on. I would say I also think that it is important to recognize that there are things that you can do to deal with imposter syndrome yourself, but it's not to downplay the role of faculty. So Felix, we, uh, Victoria and I both trained under you and Jennifer, and you guys have done a very good job of saying, I understand what it is like to be in that position and like, look where we are now, like take it slow, go step by step. So I think having faculty, who are in your corner and who can relate to the position that you've been in and still kind of, you know, encourage you and keep you on track. I, I don't think that that should be downplayed. Uh, you know, you need great coaches to succeed in life. And so uh, hopefully everyone who goes through the training program will have similar experiences to us in that regard. Yeah. And I mean, I, I would say, uh, you know, I, I would say that all the faculty here uh, do try their best to coach the fellows. Um, but, you know, it, it's all dependent on, you know, what your personal style is, what your personality is. Sometimes someone's particular wavelength is just a lot more in line with yours. So, you know, maybe you get a lot more benefit from that. Uh, but you're right, Matt, you know, for sure. The more coaching, mentoring there is, uh, you know, especially for fellows who are just starting or trying to get in, you know, the more they understand that their experience is not, um, I don't want to use the word unique because everyone's experience is unique. It's not an isolated experience. I think the more you can come to terms with all of these things that everyone's going to eventually have to face. So I, I definitely agree with you. Right, the more you see that, well, you know, someone else has gone through it. You know, they seem to be relatively intact, if I'm talking about myself. Um, and so you're like, you know, something must be able to work out, right? There must be something that I can also do for myself so that I can at least appear to be intact. <laughs> so I think transitioning like into the fellowship is definitely somewhere where you start to feel imposter syndromes. You're brand new to this whole new field. And the next time is probably when we start into our jobs. So right now, Felix is the only one who started into his job. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that transition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, see, you you just progress through these hurdles that you don't even think you're capable of handling until you look at it in hindsight. Um, but I mean, first off, congratulations to you both, because I, I have heard through the grapevine that you've both locked down employment, which is fantastic. Um, for for me, it's hard to, even though it hasn't ha it hasn't been like a very um, big absolute amount of time. I feel like it's been so long ago. I, I don't even remember how I cope with it anymore. Um, you know, I feel like it's it's all those same things that you um, have to get through when you start your PhD or when you start your fellowship. You know, it's things like oh my God, I'm in a new environment. 
I, I don't think I know what I'm doing. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if they know who they hired. They're going to be disappointed because they'll quickly realize that, you know, I am not what I portrayed during my interview. Um, you know, the, these people aren't going to trust me. You know, why would they care what I have to say when they've had fantastic biochemists working here for like the past few decades? Who's going to listen to me? Um, you deal with all of that, right? Um, how I, if I think back to what like my um, greatest strategy was to, uh, you know, at least get over the imposter syndrome and really establish myself. For me, I think it was really getting to understand what I could do to add value to the institution. And I think, I mean, at the end of the day, all of us are here, you know, wherever you work, because we are saying implicitly that we can offer you value, right? Based on our own unique training and knowledge and our way of doing things. And so I think that's how I started was to say, okay, well, the best way to get over this and to, you know, at least feel a little established is demonstrating that I do have value despite all of these doubts and concerns that I have. And for me, um, and this is just because of the, um, the way I work and my personality, you know, I, I find it really important to have a lot of interactions with at least the immediate staff that I work with. Um, so I, I do remember distinctly, and this is usually something that I try to do whenever I'm in a new environment. I try to learn everyone's name as soon as I could, um, because I just want to establish that rapport with at least like the core laboratory staff who I would likely have the most interactions and most exposure with. Um, at the very least, I could think, you know, as long as I can start building a comfortable relationship with all of those staff, number one, they're going to know who I am. So if there are things that come up, they'll at least come to me, whether or not they come to me first, but at least they'll eventually come to me. Um, and hopefully, you know, they can see that, you know, there is someone new who is trying very hard. Um, and that, you know, that is another source of, even if it's just someone to interact with, right, whether or not they're asking me for any scientific advice. Uh, I think that's how I started, that to just demonstrate my value is that I'm here, I'm ready to engage and work with at least the lab staff first, uh, because I'm here to support them ultimately, right? That's what our job is, to help them run a smooth quality operation in the lab. Um, and then, you know, as you, you know, establish yourself in the lab, then you start to move out to, you know, quote unquote peripheries, but not periphery, because we are really in the middle of everybody in the hospital. So, you know, you start interacting with other divisions in lab medicine, and then you start expanding out to the clinical staff as well, right? And you just start to understand, you know, this is how I fit into this whole picture of lab medicine. This is how lab medicine fits into the whole picture of patient care in the institution. Um, that's how you start figuring this stuff out. So that, that's sort of how I reflect back on. I'm sure I have blacked out a lot of negative details <laughs> or at least negative details um, pertaining to like my own like doubts and challenges that I had to face. Uh, but I, I feel like that has been a thing that I have always tried to maintain um, and consistently do throughout my job, at least to overcome these things like imposter syndrome and, you know, trying to figure out uh, what you're supposed to do when you start a new job. I'm sure Matt and I will both go through that this summer when we start our positions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, but see, it, it all goes back to like these themes of, you know, finding balance. And, you know, if you think about a new job, well, the balance is going to be, um, you know, how much interactions should you have with various staff, right? Um, how much time should you dedicate to different tasks in the lab? Um, you know, how do you balance all the priorities that are first given to you or that they start piling up on you, right? Um, and then also, obviously, thinking about, you know, again, that hierarchy of knowledge is that, you know, you go into a new institution, what do you know about it, right, first off? What don't you know about it? And if you don't know something, how are you going to find out how it works at your institution, right? So you just keep driving through those type of philosophies and those motivations. And, you know, you should be able to figure it out eventually, right? Because at this point, when you're done the fellowship, you know, most of the science in terms of like the pure clinical analytical knowledge, it's there. So now you just have to apply it, right, to wherever you work. And that's going to manifest in different ways, depending on how your institution is set up and what your role is um, as a biochemist. Um, I mean, maybe you two can talk about you know, what are your thoughts so far about, you know, as you're approaching the end of fellowship and you're making this uh, new big transition to um, being employed as a biochemist? Um, well, I guess there's a few different things. And so it, it's kind of the final transition from from being someone who's in more of a student role to now switching to being someone who's supposed to be taking on a bit of a leadership role. Um, because you, you're really supposed to be someone that you can, you know, approach or various different clinical staff can approach uh, for help. And so at least for me, uh, one of the big things for, for looking for a, a place to be employed was I wanted to be part of a team. I had already previously alluded to, you know, the value of what I think a good coach or mentor is. So going to a bigger institution, um, I'm joining a place where there's, there's a handful of biochemists there. So I'm really hoping that I will receive some, some good mentoring um, when, I, when I arrive. I, I think any new place will always be a challenge. Um, and so you're always going to feel like you've got big shoes to fill, but uh, I think kind of inherent in a lot of us is, is that something that, you know, it does make you nervous, but it also makes you excited. And I think that's kind of, you know, the roles that we've chosen as our careers and uh, something that makes it so exciting is that I never think I'll stop learning. So when I know that I'll never know everything and that's expected me at the job, it does kind of give me some comfort uh, knowing that I've still got lots of room to grow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point that we've really, up until this point, we've really been students our entire lives. So it, it'll be a really interesting transition to now be almost like a faculty at a university, potentially teaching as well and being a leader in our lab. So it's going to be a lot of new roles that will be exciting to really transition into. And I think another exciting part of our field is like usually people are finding finding their niche and finding somewhere that they can truly be an expert in so I think that's also something I'm really looking forward to kind of finding that niche and seeing where I can really um, apply my knowledge and expertise not only at my institution but really in this in the field of clinical chemistry. I mean, it, it's exciting. It's a little scary. Uh, you're anxious, but you're also, you know, very, um, you know, highly anticipating the switch too. Um, like a few things that you both have mentioned. So number one, uh, Matt, you mentioned that, um, 
you will likely transition into a leadership role. And I think that is very true. I think that is something that I am still learning on how to adapt um, because I never really thought about it um, as a fellow. Because like you said, you're sort of a student, you're shadowing or you're under someone's supervision. But now all of a sudden, uh, you know, you are the leader or people are coming to you with advice. And so that, that's really going to heighten those imposter syndrome moments. Uh, but, you know, you will learn to adapt. Uh, but truly, uh, that is something very important um, in terms of succeeding at this job, I would say, is uh, learning how to cultivate your leadership skills and, you know, also figure out, you know, how do I... Um, act out my own like leadership uh, skills without, um, you know, impeding on someone else's, um, you know, quote unquote, territory or responsibilities, right? You know, you want to be able to work in harmony with, you know, other leaders in your institution, right? And that could be the managers or, you know, in the clinical wars, right? And they are coming from a very different place. And, you know, you should be giving, you know, complementary leadership things, right? And certainly not conflicting things. So that that, that is something to think about. Um, and then I, I think, Vicky, you were talking about, you know, when uh, you go into your job, you know, you might turn into, you know, a leader or, you know, you might be teaching the new fellows now. Um, I think something that I, I think about or I was acutely aware of when I started was that, you know, th this switch happened all of a sudden, right? So I um, like went from a fellow to this job um, and being an academic institution, you know, you also are part of the teaching the fellows. And then I'm like, well, you know, I, I didn't suddenly become qualified. And I you know, to be honest, even now, I, I don't think I'm completely qualified because I am constantly still learning from the fellows themselves too. Um, but it, it was very scary because I'm like, you know, what makes it that all of a sudden, just because I've started at this institution, that I should be, you know, teaching fellows now? Um, but uh, I think it's um, it's important to reflect on these things, right? Um, because it, it doesn't mean that you're not qualified, but it may mean that you need to hone in or cultivate a new set of skills because you know you weren't doing this previously, right? I know I know the fellows do try to give some mentoring and coaching. Um, to say the junior fellows in the program, but it's not in this type of more formal teaching environment where you're now expected to help these uh, trainees get through like a, a set curriculum. Um, so certainly things to think about, right? And you will encounter them, uh, but you'll adapt. You'll learn and you'll adapt. And I think an additional like adaptation for Matt and I with one thing I want to stress again about this profession is it is quite niche and sometimes you can't find a job in the city you're currently living in and you'll have to move. So I think that's going to be another interesting adaptation with us both really building homes and moving to new cities and, and really relocating. So it's going to be a lot of new things all at once. So a little scary, but very exciting. For sure. I mean, see, again, it's, it's, it's like your balance is changing because your life is changing now, right? And it's not just going to be the professional, it'll be your personal lives as well. Um, and, you know, you're constantly seeking that balance for sure. Um, so I think with that, it's probably a good time to end this. You know, I, I think this has been a really fun 
uh, casual conversation with you two. You know, I haven't chatted with you two like this probably since you were at Sinai, which was a while ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I, I think this is really nice to just talk about sort of the other things that we don't necessarily explicitly or consciously think about sometimes in our job, uh, because we are ultimately most of the time focused on a lot of the scientific part of it. Yeah, we think we both really want to thank our special guest today, Dr. Matthew Nichols, for joining us and talking about his experience getting into the fellowship, um, being in the fellowship, and really preparing for the next steps. So we are hoping that this will be a new series where we can have these informal interviews with other fellows across the country. So thank you all for listening to this episode of The Lab Report. So please let us know what you think by leaving us a review on iTunes. And you can email us any questions you have at epoc or epocc at cscc.ca. See you in the next episode.